The Story of the Hugos Volume 4 of Famous Affinities of History This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Famous Affinities of History by Lyndon Orr Volume 4 The Story of the Hugos Victor Hugo, after all criticisms have been made, stands as a literary colossus. He had imaginative power, which makes his finest passages fairly crash upon the reader's brain like blasting thunderbolts. His novels, even when translated, are read and re-read by people of every degree of education. There is something vast, something almost titanic, about the grandeur and gorgeousness of his fancy. His prose resembles the sonorous blare of an immense military band. Readers of English care less for his poetry. Yet, in his verse, one can find another phase of his intellect. He could write charmingly in exquisite cadences, poems for lovers and for little children. His gifts were varied, and he knew thoroughly the life and thought of his own countrymen, and therefore... In his later days, he was almost deified by them. At the same time, there were defects in his intellect and character which are perceptible in what he wrote, as well as in what he did. He had the Gallic wit in great measure, yet he was absolutely devoid of any sense of humor. That is why, in both his prose and his poetry, his most tremendous pages often come perilously near to bombast. And this is why, Again, as a man, his vanity was almost as great as his genius. He had good reason to be vain, and yet, if he had possessed a gleam of humor, he would never have allowed his egotism to make him arrogant. As it was, he felt himself exalted above other mortals. Whatever he did, or said, or wrote was right, because he did it, or said it, or wrote it. This often showed itself in rather whimsical ways. Thus, after he had published the first edition of his novel, The Man Who Laughs, an English gentleman called upon him, and after some courteous compliments, suggested that in subsequent editions the name of an English peer, who figures in the book, should be changed from Tom Jimjack. For, said the Englishman, Tom Jimjack is a name that could not possibly belong to an English noble, or indeed to any Englishman. The presence of it in your powerful story makes it seem to English readers a little grotesque. Victor Hugo drew himself up with an air of high disdain. Who are you? he asked. I am an Englishman, was the answer, and naturally I know what names are possible in English. Hugo drew himself up higher, and on his face there was a smile of utter contempt. Yes, he said, you are an Englishman, but I, I am Victor Hugo. In another book, Hugo had spoken of the Scottish bagpipes as bugpipes. This gave some offense to his Scottish admirers. A great many persons told him that the word was bagpipes and not bugpipes. But he replied with irritable obstinacy. I am Victor Hugo, and if I choose to write it bugpipes, it is bugpipes. 
It is anything that I prefer to make it. It is so because I call it so. So Victor Hugo became a violent Republican because he did not wish France to be an empire or a kingdom in which an emperor or a king would be his superior in rank. He always spoke of Napoleon III as M. Barnaparte. He refused to call upon the gentle-mannered emperor of Brazil because he was an emperor, although Don Pedro expressed an earnest desire to meet the poet. When the German army was besieging Paris, Hugo proposed to fight a duel with the king of Prussia and to have the result of it settle the war. For, said he, the king of Prussia is a great king, but I am Victor Hugo, the great poet. We are, therefore, equal. In spite, however, of his ardent republicanism, he was very fond of speaking of his own noble descent. Again and again he styled himself a peer of France, and he and his family made frequent allusions to the knights and bishops and counselors of state with whom he claimed an ancestral relation. This was more than inconsistent. It was somewhat ludicrous, because Victor Hugo's ancestry was by no means noble. The Hugos of the 15th and 16th centuries were not in any way related to the poet's family, which was eminently honest and respectable, but by no means one of distinction. His grandfather was a carpenter. One of his aunts was the wife of a baker, another of a barber while the third earned her living as a provincial dressmaker. If the poet had been less vain and more sincerely democratic, he would have been proud to think that he sprang from good, sound, sturdy stock, and would have laughed at titles. As it was, he jeered at all pretensions of rank in other men, while he claimed for himself distinctions that were not really his. His father was a soldier who rose from the ranks until, under Napoleon, he reached the grade of general. His mother was the daughter of a shipowner in Nantes. Victor Hugo was born in February, 1802, during the Napoleonic Wars, and his early years were spent among the camps and within the sound of cannon thunder. It was fitting that he should have been born and reared in an age of upheaval, revolt, and battle. He was essentially the laureate of revolt, and in some of his novels, as in 93, the drum and the trumpet roll and ring through every chapter. The present paper has, of course, nothing to do with Hugo's public life, yet it is necessary to remember the complicated nature of the man. All his power, all his sweetness of disposition, and likewise all his vanity and his eccentricities, we must remember also that he was French, so that his story may be interpreted in the light of the French character. At age of fifteen he was domiciled in Paris, and though still a schoolboy and destined for the study of law, he dreamed only of poetry and of literature. He received honorable mention from the French Academy in 1817, and in the following year took prizes in a poetical competition. At seventeen he began the publication of a literary journal, which survived until 1821. His astonishing energy became evident in the many publications which he put forth in these boyish days. He began to become known. Although poetry, then as now, was not very profitable, even when it was admired, one of his slender volumes brought him the sum of 700 francs. 
which seemed to him not only a fortune in itself, but the forerunner of still greater prosperity. It was at this time, while still only twenty years of age, that he met a young girl of eighteen with whom he fell rather tempestuously in love. Her name was Adele Fouchet, and she was the daughter of a clerk in the war office. When one is very young and also a poet, it takes very little to feed the flame of passion. Victor Hugo was often a guest at the apartments of Monsieur Fouchet, where he was received by that gentleman and his family. French etiquette, of course, forbade any direct communication between the visitor and Adele. She was still a very young girl, and was supposed to take no share in conversation. Therefore, while the others talked, she sat demurely by the fireside and sewed. Her dark eyes and abundant hair, her grace of manner, and the very picture which she made as the firelight played about her, kindled a flame in the susceptible heart of Victor Hugo. Though he could not speak to her, he could at least look at her, and before long his share in the conversation was very slight. This was set down at first to his absent-mindedness, but looks can be as eloquent as spoken words. Madame Fouché, with a woman's keen intelligence, noted the adoring gaze of Victor Hugo as he silently watched her daughter. The young Adèle herself was no less intuitive than her mother. It was very well understood in the course of a few months that Victor Hugo was in love with Adèle Fouché. Her father and mother took counsel about the matter, and Hugo himself, in a burst of lyrical eloquence, confessed that he adored Adele and wished to marry her. Her parents naturally objected. The girl was but a child. She had no dowry, nor had Victor Hugo any settled income. They were not to think of marriage. But when did a common-sense decision, such as this, ever separate a man and a woman who have felt the thrill of first love? Victor Hugo was insistent. With his supreme self-confidence, he declared that he was bound to be successful, and that in a very short time he would be illustrious. Adele, on her side, created an atmosphere at home, by weeping frequently, and by going about with hollow eyes and wistful looks. The Fouché family removed from Paris to a country town. Victor Hugo immediately followed them. Fortunately for him, his poems had attracted the attention of Louis the Eighteenth, who was flattered by some of the verses. He sent Hugo five hundred francs for an ode, and soon afterward settled upon him a pension of a thousand francs. Here, at least, was an income, a very small one, to be sure, but still an income. Perhaps Adele's father was impressed not so much by the actual money as by the evidence of the royal favor. At any rate, he withdrew his opposition, and the two young people were married in October 1822, both of them being underage, unformed, and immature. Their story is another warning against too early marriage. It is true that they lived together until Madame Hugo's death, a married life of forty-six years. Yet their story presents phases which would have made this impossible had they not been French. For a time, Hugo devoted all his energies to work. The record of his steady upward progress is part of the history of literature, and need not be repeated here. 
the poet and his wife were soon able to leave the latter's family abode and to set up their own household god in a home which was their own around them there were gathered in a sort of salon all the best-known writers of the day dramatists critics poets and romancers the hugos knew everybody unfortunately one of their visitors cast into their new life a drop of corroding bitterness the intruder was charles augustine saint bevet a man two years younger than victor hugo and one who blended learning imagination and a gift of critical analysis saint bouvet is to-day best remembered as a critic and he was perhaps the greatest critic ever known in france but in eighteen thirty he was a slender insinuating youth who cultivated a gift for sensuous and somewhat morbid poetry he had won victor hugo's friendship by writing an enthusiastic notice of hugo's dramatic works hugo in turn styled saint bouvet as an eagle a blazing star and paid him other compliments no less gorgeous and hugoesque but in truth if saint bouvet frequented the hugo salon it was less because of his admiration for the poet than from his desire to win the love of the poet's wife it is quite impossible to say how far he attracted the serious attention of adele hugo saint bouvet represents a curious type which is far more common in france and italy than in the countries of the north human nature is not very different in cultivated circles anywhere man loves seeks to win the object of his love or as the old english proverb has it it's a man's part to try and a woman's to deny but only in the latin countries do men who have tried make their attempts public and seek to produce an impression that they have been successful and that the woman has not denied this sort of man in english-speaking lands is set down simply as a cad and excluded from other people's houses but in some other countries the thing is regarded with a certain amount of toleration we see it in the two books written respectively by alfred de musset and george sand we have seen it still later in our own times in that strange and half-repulsive story in which the italian novelist and poet gabriel d'annunzio under very thin disguise revealed his relations with the famous actress eleonora Doucet. anglo-saxons thrust such books aside with a feeling of disgust for the man who could so betray a sacred confidence and perhaps exaggerate a simple indiscretion into actual guilt but it is not so in france and italy and this is precisely what saint bouvet attempted dr george mclean harper in his lately published study of saint bouvet has summed the matter up admirably in speaking of the book of love he had the vein of emotional self-disclosure the vein of romantic or sentimental confession this last was not a rich load and so he was at pains to charge it secretly with ore which he exhumed gloatingly but was really base metal the impulse that led him along this false route was partly ambition partly sensuality many a worse man would have been restrained by self-respect and good taste and no man with a sense of honor 
would have permitted the book of love to see the light a small collection of verses recording his passion for madame hugo and designed to implicate her he left two hundred and five printed copies of this book to be distributed after his death a virulent enemy of saint beauvais was not too expressive when he declared that its purpose was to leave on the life of this woman the gleaming and slimy trace which the passage of a snail leaves on a rose abominable in either case whether or not the implication was unfounded saint beuvet's numerous innuendos in regard to madame hugo are an indelible stain on his memory and his infamy not only cost him his most precious friendships but crippled him in every high endeavor how monstrous was this violation of both friendship and love may be seen in the following quotation from his writings in that inevitable hour when the gloomy tempest and the jealous gulf shall roll over our heads a sealed bottle belched forth from the abyss will render immortal our two names their close alliance and our double memory aspiring after union whether or not madame hugo's relations with saint beuvet justified the latter even thinking such thoughts as these one need not inquire too minutely evidently though victor hugo could no longer be the friend of the man who most openly boasted that he had dishonored him there exist some sharp letters which passed between hugo and saint beuvet their intimacy was ended but there was something more serious than this saint beuvet had in fact succeeded in leaving a taint upon the name of victor hugo's wife that hugo did not repudiate her makes it fairly plain that she was innocent yet a high-spirited sensitive soul like hugo's could never forget that in the world's eye she was compromised the two still lived together as before but now the poet felt himself released from the strict obligations of the marriage bond it may perhaps be doubted whether he would in any case have remained faithful all his life he was as mr h w wack well says quote, a man of powerful sensations physically as well as mentally hugo pursued every opportunity for new work new sensations fresh emotion he desired to absorb as much on life's eager forward way as his great nature craved his range in all things mental physical and spiritual was so far beyond the ordinary that the gauge of average cannot be applied to him the cavil of the moralist did not disturb him hence it is not improbable that victor hugo might have broken through the bonds of marital fidelity even had saint beuvet never written his abnormal poems but certainly these poems hastened a result which may or may not have been otherwise inevitable hugo no longer turned wholly to the dark-haired dark-eyed adele as summing up for him the whole of womanhood a veil was drawn as it were from before his eyes and he looked on other women and found them beautiful it was in eighteen thirty three soon after hugo's play lucrece borgia had been accepted for production that a lady called one morning at hugo's house in the place royale she was then between twenty and thirty years of age 
slight of figure, winsome in her bearing, and one who knew the arts which appeal to men. For she was no inexperienced ingenue. The name upon her visiting card was Madame Drouet, and by this name she had been known in Paris as a clever and somewhat gifted actress. Theophile Gautier, whose cult was the worship of physical beauty, wrote in almost lyric prose of her seductive charm. At nineteen, after she had been cast upon the world, dowered with that terrible combination, poverty and beauty, she had lived openly with a sculptor named Pradier. This has a certain importance in the history of French art. Pradier had received a commission to execute a statue representing Strasbourg, the statue which stands today in the Place de la Concorde, and which patriotic Frenchmen and Frenchwomen drape in mourning and half-bury in immortelles, in memory of that city of Alsace which so long was French, but today is German, one of Germany's great prizes taken in the War of 1870. Five years before her meeting with Hugo, Pradier had rather brutally severed his connection with her, and she had accepted the protection of a Russian nobleman. At this time she was known by her real name, Julien Josephine Gauvin, but having gone upon the stage, she assumed the appellation by which she was thereafter known, that of Juliette Drouet. Her visit to Hugo was for the purpose of asking him to secure for her a part in his forthcoming play. The dramatist was willing, but unfortunately all the major characters had been provided for, and he was able to offer her only the minor one of the Princess Negroni. The charming deference with which she accepted the offered part attracted Hugo's attention. Such amiability is very rare in actresses who have had engagements at the best theaters. He resolved to see her again, and he did so time after time until he was thoroughly captivated by her. She knew her value, and as yet was by no means infatuated with him. At first he was to her simply a means of getting on in her profession, simply another influential acquaintance. Yet she brought to bear upon him the arts at her command, her beauty and her sympathy, and last of all her passionate abandonment. Hugo was overwhelmed by her, he found that she was in debt, and he managed to see that her debts were paid. He secured her other engagements at the theater, though she was less successful as an actress after she knew him. There came for a time a short break in their relations, for, partly out of need, she returned to her Russian nobleman, or at least admitted him to a menage a trois. Hugo underwent, for a second time, a great disillusionment. Nevertheless, he was not too proud to return to her and beg her not to be unfaithful any more. Touched by his tears, and perhaps foreseeing his future fame, she gave her promise, and she kept it until her death, nearly a half-century later. Perhaps because she had deceived him once, Hugo never completely lost his prudence in his association with her. He was by no means lavish with money and he installed her in a rather simple apartment, only a short distance from his own home. He gave her an allowance that was relatively small, 
though later he provided for her amply in his will. But it was to her that he brought all his confidences. To her he entrusted all his interests. She became to him thenceforth much more than she appeared to the world at large, for she was his friend, and, as he said, his inspiration. The fact of their intimate connection became gradually known through Paris. It was known even to Madame Hugo, but she, remembering the affair of Saint-Beuvet, or knowing how difficult it is to check the will of a man like Hugo, made no sign and even received Juliette Drouet in her own house and visited her in turn. When the poet's sons grew up to manhood, they too spent many hours with their father in the little salon of the former actress. It was strange, and to an Anglo-Saxon mind, an almost impossible position. Yet France forgives much to genius, and in time no one thought of commenting on Hugo's manner of life. In 1851, when Napoleon III seized upon the government, and when Hugo was in danger of arrest, she assisted him to escape in disguise, and with a forged passport across the Belgian frontier. During his long exile in Guernsey, she lived in the same close relationship to him and his family. Madame Hugo died in 1868, having known for 33 years that she was only second in her husband's thoughts. Was she doing penance, or was she merely accepting the inevitable? In any case, her position was most pathetic, though she uttered no complaint. A very curious and poignant picture of her, just before her death, has been given by the pen of a visitor in Guernsey. He had met Hugo and his sons. He had seen the great novelist eating enormous slices of roast beef and drinking great goblets of red wine at dinner, and he had also watched him early each morning, divested of all his clothing and splashing about in a bathtub on the top of the house, in view of all the town. One evening he called and found only Madame Hugo. She was reclining on a couch, and was evidently suffering great pain. Surprised, he asked where her husband and her sons were. Oh, she replied, They've all gone to Madame Druette's to spend the evening and enjoy themselves. Go also, you will not find it amusing here. One ponders over this sad scene with conflicting thoughts. Was there really any truth in the story at which Saint-Beuvet more than hinted? If so, Adèle Hugo was more than punished. The other woman had sinned far more, and yet she had never been Hugo's wife and hence perhaps it was right that she should suffer less. Suffer she did, for after her devotion to Hugo had become sincere and deep, he betrayed her confidence by an intrigue with a girl who is spoken of as Claire. The knowledge of it caused her infinite anguish, but it all came to an end, and she lived past her eightieth year, long after the death of Madame Hugo. She died only a short time before the poet himself was laid to rest in Paris, with magnificent obsequies which an emperor might have envied. In her old age, Juliette Druet became very white and very wan, yet she never quite lost the charm with which, as a girl, she had won the heart of Hugo. The story has many aspects. One may see in it a retribution, 
or one may see in it only the cruelty of life. Perhaps it is best regarded simply as a chapter in the strange life histories of men of genius. End of the story of the Hugos